Welcome to Top of the Game with Javier Sade, where we talk to amazing people that are shaping the world. These lightning round talks explore what makes remarkable leaders tick. Thinkers and doers pushing humankind forward and at the top of their games. Impactful insights, global perspectives, valuable wisdom you can use every day in your life and work. This is Top of the Game. Enjoy today's episode. Here's Javier. Today we welcome Mel Lagomasino. Mel is an American treasure, got to the United States in 1960 after the Cuban Revolution and has had a remarkable and amazing career. She started in finance in Chase and Citibank, eventually rising to the top of the private bank at J.P. Morgan, running $300 billion. She struck out on her own and round runs We Family Office with about $13 billion in assets under management. Mel has also served on many corporate boards and today serves on two iconic American companies' boards, Disney and Coca-Cola. We discuss the future of finance, governance, and pound cake. Marielena Mel Lagomasino, welcome. Hola, Javier. It's great to see you. Great to see you. Um, so as you know, this podcast really is about talking to just remarkable people around the world that operate at the top of their game. You have been at the top of your game for 50 years. I don't mean to date you. <laughs> but you do. But I just did. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's start kind of at the beginning and then work our way from there. Uh, where were you born? Where do you live now? I was born in Havana, Cuba, and we came to the U.S. Uh, in 1960, about a year and a half after Castro. And today I live between Miami and New York. So you live on a plane? Yes. Well, yes, in between. The portfolio of activities you've had in the business of money, you know, started with Chase and Citibank, and then you ran the private bank for J.P. Morgan. I think that was like $300 billion. So you're uh, at the top of your game allocating capital and have been for decades. How has that business changed? Well, I, I think it's changed dramatically in many ways. Uh, and yet the, the fundamentals are, are still the same. I mean, I'm on the side of the business where basically what matters is the advice that you give to each individual and that advice has to be custom tailored to whatever that family needs and every family is different so i think that um the business has changed a lot in in that in the major financial companies unfortunately it went from being an advisory business to being a selling and distribution business mm -hmm. and that's actually why i decided to leave the big Uh, financial companies and form a company whose sole purpose is to advise these families and help them feel confident and take control of their financial lives. And that's sort of the fun part of managing money, right? It's not the tactical, you know, selling and distribution. It's actually real advice and thinking and strategy. So let, let's stay with that for a second. In the world of Uh, public securities, very well know, if you want exposure to uh, the S&P 500, you, you know, today, most of the money has moved from sort of ETF, passively managed indexes, and there's thousands of them, 
um, from what used to be mutual funds and active managers. So this is more about the product. What's your sense on, on where the world is going? Uh, not just necessarily for the families you serve, which are wealthy and, and well-resourced, but just for anybody in the country to own a piece of, I guess, the American economy, right? It's much easier now. What's your thought on this movement? I think it's very important to have a low-cost index product. I think that that is the best way for the majority of people to actually invest in the economy. Um, and I think, that, you know, there's there's tons of data uh, when it comes to mm-hmm. the very, the public markets, uh, particularly the, the large cap or the better known uh, and most liquid markets that, that usually, like overwhelmingly, most managers don't earn their fee. So I think for the population at large, the emergence of passive strategies at very low cost is fantastic for consumers. On the other hand, for the families that have uh, more liquidity than they need, the ability to trade liquidity for returns has been a really important driver of returns. And that has been democratized to a very great extent. I mean, it used to be something for the very few. And today, actually, almost in a mass market where you can invest in hedge funds, you can invest in private equity, private credit, et cetera. The problem is that, or the challenge is that if you don't have the right advice, you really could lose your shirt. And you really don't understand, you might not really understand what you're getting into. And, you know, the one thing about uh, advising clients is you never want them to be surprised on the downside. And and some of these strategies are quite complex. So I think we're going to go to more and more passive on one side and more and more of these more private, less liquid opportunities on the other. Yeah, and just for the benefit of the listeners that are not super pros like you, on the sort of the more illiquid um, side, you have hedge funds, private equity, venture capital that typically charge 2%, right? And then on the kind of index side, call it BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, they'll charge like 0.04%. So it's much cheaper. Exactly. Um, and then the, I guess in your parlance, finding alpha, which is that return above the, above the the median or above the index, is what becomes hard. So this bifurcation is different than it used to be before. That's basically the message you're you're telling me, yeah? Yes, yes, absolutely. And and also, you know that that the less liquid strategies are much more complex usually and more difficult to understand. And so ideally, people would have an advisor helping them understand the risk and the opportunity that they're investing in. Yeah. Let's um, let's take a little bit of a different tack. You happen to serve on the board of two of the most iconic companies in the world. Literally, everybody has heard of them, Coca-Cola and Disney. Companies in the context of investing in capital allocation, I'm not going to talk I'm not going to ask you about the guts of how you govern the companies. What I'm going to ask is the following. This move to passive investing, some of your, actually, I know for a fact that the biggest holders of public equities today are some of these passive funds. Like even if they don't want to own you, 
they have to own you, right? If you're in the S&P 500, you're going to be in there. So how do you differentiate from a capital allocation standpoint? Um, if you're one of these companies, when the money that flows in in the secondary markets for holding the stock is done through indexes. Actually, the biggest shareholders for both of those companies are Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're all passive. And there is quite a lot of shareholder engagement um, between the companies and those investors. And uh, those, those investors have, um, you know, organizations that are mostly asking, as you say, they're not buying and selling the stock because of investment performance. They basically own the stock. So what they, they really uh, want to talk to you about is governance, about uh, environment and sustainability, mm-hmm. uh, and about your, your talent, how you're managing your talent. And, um, and they often have a point of view about these issues. So they have a definite point of view about mm-hmm. the compensation of the chief executive. Uh, they definitely have a point of view about whether or not you're, you're managing your climate risk. Um, so, and they definitely have a point of view about who are the directors on the board. So actually, while one thinks of them as passive from the corporate perspective, they are the most important shareholders. Uh, and there is a fair amount of of effort by the companies to engage with them and be sure that they understand the strategy, they understand the governance, they understand what's going on, and that we we are really uh, answering their their concerns. Yeah, as capitalism evolves, and it has evolved, so has the way in which people deploy. Capital. I want to stay with talent for a second, Mel. You've managed thousands of people. You govern companies that employ hundreds of thousands of people. This is a hard question. (laughs) As a leader and as somebody that has had a front row seat to the very best leaders, what do you think makes for excellent and amazing leader? Yeah. And, and, you know, some of the things that make for excellent leaders are not necessarily the technical or, or operational experience that they've had. It's more about what are their personal attributes? Are they, are they hungry to learn? Um, what is the level of EQ? How do they work with others and how do they get others, uh, on board? Um, what kind of, you know, actually, I think humility is one of the most important things for leaders, a genuine interest in people and in helping coaching and helping other people grow. I think those are some of the characteristics of great leaders. And of course, I think that um, you really can't do all that if you're not a good communicator. So I think you really have to be, you have to be able to communicate with different audiences at different levels in a way that resonates with them. And you have to be able to have that flexibility of communication style. Yeah, you're describing what makes humans humans. I don't want to get into AI. No. But, but, you know, even when we get there, and we're still on our path there, it is very hard to program empathy, humility, emotive capacity, 
into into a machine. Staying in this theme of learning humility, knowing that you don't know stuff and that life is about asking questions, we all make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes are formative, not because of the moment, but because of what it does to us over time, right? You can connect the dots looking back. Yeah. Tell me about, I don't know if you want to characterize it as a mistake or a challenge that you turned into a positive. That's a good question. I always try to look at the at the lemonade. Yeah, I think I'm going to answer your question a different way about looking backwards and connecting the dots. I I think, you know, my passion for the business that I do and advising the family has everything to do with what happened to my family in 1960 when we had to leave Cuba and leave everything behind. And I became totally convinced that um, that the capital that it, that families own is usually they get it with blood, sweat and tears. There's been lots of sacrifice and that they deserve to be able to keep it and they deserve to be able to use it for their families. And there's lots of people who are after that capital, whether you call it very aggressive providers or you call it family members or you call it government, everybody's after that capital. Um, and so my mission has been since I started the business to help families, to help protect the capital of families. Um, and I think, I don't know if it's a screw up, but at, at, at a certain point I realized that what what the bank wanted me to do by, um, you know, in the private banking business was more about buying and was more about distributing and selling than it was about advising. And the problem with distributing and selling is that that becomes the mission and the objective as opposed to having the mission and the objective be advice, even if it means that you don't sell anything. And so I would tell you that it was because of that sort of my realizing that I didn't want to do that and I wasn't in the same place as my employer that made me leave the bank and form my own company. And when I look back, I realized that all the different steps that I had along my career were to get me right where I am today. And so I don't know if it's a screw up. Yeah, it is not a screw up. But what you're talking about is what we essentially gain with experience is essentially the ability to weave a storyline and thread through the discrete act we take over a lifetime. And to us, it makes all the sense in the world, right? It's us. But when you, you know, for for young people out there, which um, many of them are listening, sometimes having a very specific plan with a very specific goal, they're good to have, but you have no idea what life is going to throw you, right? I never had one. I, I always wondered about, you know, all these career advisors that make your five-year plan. I never had a five-year plan. I just, I never had any plan. My only plan was be as good as you can be at what you're doing and keep learning. And that's precisely to that point, Javier, because you don't know what opportunity you're going to get. You don't know what life is going to throw at you. You don't know what's going to happen. You might be sitting perfectly uh, well in it with a particular employee, employer and they sell the company. Or they merge a company and everything changes overnight. And then what? What happened to your five-year plan? It blows up. That's what happens. Yeah. Mel, we can go on for days, but I know you got to go back to running your billions, your clients' <laughs> billions. Um, so I'm going to ask you a few. I'd like to end the show with kind of a fun lightning round 
of things that helps paint a picture of all the amazing people that come through the show, you included. So are you ready? Yep. What's your favorite food? Pizza. What's your favorite drink? Red wine. Um, dessert? A pound cake. Movie? I would say Gone with the Wind. What is your favorite place to visit, your happy place? It's a Watermill in Long Island. You are a treasure. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking time. Thanks you too, Javier. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For information and links about today's guests, check out the show notes and visit topofthegame-thepod.com. Your host, Javier Sade, the show Top of the Game. Thanks for listening.